Welcome to the Vancouver Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Drew O'Grizzik, and we're here with Boris Mann, founder of Frontier Foundry. Thank you for joining us, Boris. Thanks, Drew. All right, why don't you tell us, uh, maybe start out a little bit about yourself and, and your background, and then we'll work into Frontier Foundry and what that's all about. Okay, uh, well, I've been back in Vancouver for about 13 years, uh, which is notable because back in 2004, lots of interesting things were starting to happen in Vancouver like the launch of Flickr uh, in its original version and uh, have been working ever since and kind of helping to grow the tech community here. Very cool. So I was, um, I'm originally from Vancouver myself, but I was away in 2004. I went away for, um, well, I guess about 10 or 11 years. Uh, and I came back um, in actually 2013. So you'll have to fill me in. 2004 <laughs> that time, uh, I I actually met you. I think at uh, I think the first time was you were giving a talk at Hootsuite on um, using Google Drive as your backend and uh, Sheet C JS or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been long involved in in open source. I came back to Vancouver and uh, got involved. I was been blogging for well 16 years now and so I actually knew people in Vancouver through blogging because that's what happened back then and it was before all of the other social medias uh, happened uh, and uh, we, we would do geek meetups uh, which at the time would have seven to ten people uh, total that we could kind of reach online and now we probably have you know um, seven to ten meetups per week that have uh, you know thirty to a hundred people attending. So lots of stuff has has happened in uh, in the meantime. Yeah, the community is definitely growing, and I think thanks to people like yourself who are quite active uh, in organizing and just putting yourself out there, uh, it's really becoming a nice cohesive sort of uh, sort of thing. Okay, so why don't we hop over to Frontier Foundry and tell us a bit about what that's all about? Sure. So. We started Frontier in March of this year, um, sort of formally and in, in full time. Uh, Adrian Yonkles uh, was the original co-conspirator that we that I started things with. We've been talking for sort of six to nine months previously. Uh, he moved here to Vancouver from Dubai, and part of my discussions with him really led me to thinking about what kind of company can we build in Vancouver that really has the whole world as its customers, that goes global from, from day one. And in many ways, it was a way of designing something that both Adrian and I that wanted to work on and thinking about areas of frontier technology. So that's a very broad space, but basically we've spent the last 10 or 15 years building B2B SaaS companies that have gotten much easier and cheaper to build and we kind of know what they look like right now but we don't really know what frontier tech companies look like we don't know what a blockchain company looks like or an augmented reality company or machine learning or messaging and those are all sort of new new things so how do you fund them how do you create them what are the customers for them uh, what kind of expertise do you need uh, in each of these and, and that was kind of the foundational piece for, for Frontier. Can we build on these areas? Can we look at, at, at building into these next-gen areas uh, based in Vancouver? 
um, combining that with different company structures, startup structures, and funding structures. And as part of that, we really realized that obviously that's a very broad space with lots of different expertise. And we saw blockchain as a foundational piece that, that most closely mirrored the areas that we were interested in and had expertise in and have essentially evolved um, Frontier into building a blockchain platform for early stage funding and company creation. So when people hear blockchain, uh, it seems at least the, the person on the street kind of thinks of that as synonymous with cryptocurrency, but that's not really the case, is it? No, uh, and it's of course complicated. Uh, I recently wrote up a post that, that I really felt I needed to, to put down. I often blog when I need to put something down that I can then say, okay, these are my thoughts in this area, or I need to, I'm saying this a lot, let's turn it into a blog post so that people can share it in different ways. And in this case, it was inspired by Lisa Chang, the co-founder of Vanbex, and she, uh, we did a, a, a meetup, and, uh, and she explained that blockchain really has three definitions. One, there's the computer science innovation of Merkle tree and, and related uh, crypto uh, algorithms that uh, actually enable this concept of a blockchain. Two, there are instances of public blockchains such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and I, about six months ago, I, you know, only 20% of people could tell me the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I think there's, there's more evolution still to be done there. And third... Um, Tw think, now 20% of technical people, I assume. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Person on the street, forget it. Uh, and, and, and yeah, these are, these are people in, in kind of my sphere who I consider to be peers who just haven't gotten around to looking any deeper. The third definition of blockchain is its ethos of decentralization and trustlessness and permissionless innovation and uh, other interesting aspects that, that happen when you do these things as, as global decentralized networks. And I think related to that, that concept of decentralization has other related technologies that aren't themselves blockchains. And I'm really worried that that entire last bit will still sound like gobbledygook to lots of your audience. Yeah, I think that it's still, um, there's, there's starting to become a lot of hype out there uh, around uh, blockchain, around cryptocurrencies and around ICOs, sometimes for the same reason and sometimes for different reasons. Um, but a lot of it does sound like gobbledygook to a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> now, if we go over to, um, say, cryptocurrencies and ICOs, uh, is this something that you've had much experience with? I always hesitate around this because on the one hand, uh, all of this stuff is brand new. And I think a lot of us are suffering from various bits and pieces of imposter syndrome. I have a certain... Mm -hmm thinking about it because of my history in various aspects of angel investing. And uh, I started the first startup accelerator in Canada 10 years ago, Boot Up Labs. So ever since then, I've been doing more on the kind of investing and venture side of things. And I've been thinking lots about the what I call uh, future of venture. So an evolution of, of funding models uh, and ICOs or initial coin offerings, which we should probably define if we're going to keep using that, that acronym. Um, are ways of offering um, blockchain tokens or coins to people to buy into that will then fund building a project in some way. Uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, I don't know that I can do a good job of defining them separately. I think Bitcoin is the original cryptocurrency that really kicked everything off. 
and then further coins or separate blockchains were initially created by uh, forking the open source code base of Bitcoin and changing various things. And the big thing that has happened in uh, really the last six months, nine months or so, is that the Ethereum blockchain has the ability to uh, do programming on the chain and actually create coins or tokens directly on the chain without having to run an entire separate code base. So it's, it's kind of bootstrapping on top of Ethereum. And so by lowering the barrier to entry, it's causing lots more people to say, hey, it's really easy for me to get people to buy these tokens and thus fund my projects and talk to a global audience. And there's been some uh, record-breaking funding basically since May of this year in that space. So a lot of the time, I think understanding uh, a new domain or new to me or, or new to the person, um, in, in doing so, there's a lot of vocabulary that sort of needs to be defined. Um, thank you for, for uh, explaining ICO as initial coin offering. But we're also talking about uh, cryptocurrency, so coins and tokens. Now, are these the same thing or are they different? It's, it's kind of my understanding, maybe I can give a bit of an explanation and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of my understanding that a token is when you take a, um, a certain amount of an existing coin and you sort of color it or paint it by adding some metadata to it, uh, and that then becomes a token. Does that sound correct? Nope. <laughs> so uh, Bitcoin initially experimented with uh, the, the Bitcoin blockchain experimented with so-called colored coins. Um, so that's mm -hmm. what we might be referring to that originally happened. Um, but most of the time when people say token as opposed to coin, uh, they usually mean that it is a particular type of Ethereum-based token. There's, they, they basically came up with a standard of creating metadata uh, that indicates that a, the definition of a token that lives directly on the Ethereum blockchain. Ether is the native cryptocurrency of the Ethereum blockchain just like a Bitcoin is the native cryptocurrency of the Bitcoin blockchain. And there's a few other separate chains, um, but the vast long tail uh, end up today being tokens with launching an entire chain with its own cryptocurrency um, being relatively rare, although lots of people are, are, are attempting to do those as well. So why would that be more rare uh, and what does it mean to launch uh, an entire chain? So as I said before, um, the initial way that this happened is that people, uh, I think the other thing to understand is that is that open source uh, is really a foundational piece of some of the ethos of uh, blockchain. Um, so various uh, individuals, core developers for the various blockchains collaborate uh, on open source code repositories that actually run the core servers and clients of these separate blockchains, as well as miners, which we may need to get into in our definitions here as well. And uh, these are really written in very low level systems languages like C and C++, which is essentially not a good fit for someone who just has web app skills. 
So it takes a fair level of expertise to write these things along with a lot of sort of computer science type knowledge in efficiently implementing these cryptographic algorithms while making sure they're secure and performant. These networks have to run worldwide. So the level of effort to clone that code base and then make changes that are both different enough from the, the initial uh, code base to be relevant and different and make sure that it's secure and highly performant means you need an entire stack of C, C++ programmers to even get started. In retrospect, um, or in, in, in comparison, doing an e Ethereum ERC-20 token um, can be done in an afternoon. That won't necessarily mean it's secure or doesn't have bugs or other things like that, but you, it's that easy. Um, and of course, if you're attempting to build a business around that, you know, both how are you different from other things and what are the rest of your secure architecture if you're not based on a stack of C++ programmers, if that makes sense. So it, I think it does. Uh, ERC-20 being the Ethereum uh, token standard? That's correct. Okay, so, um, so rather than trying to launch your own whole blockchain, needing uh, a full support of sort of lower level C, C++ programmers, uh, and I guess potentially the infrastructure to support that. And miners. Including, and miners. Uh, and I guess that, that mining, so mining, and again, maybe correct me if I'm wrong with this, my understanding of this is that mining has to be um, costly enough to make the tokens worth mining. Um, Sort of, uh, I guess in the other way around is that um, there's an entire economic model around mining difficulty and the perceived and actual value of the coins and in what systems those coins work in. Um, I think when you say the word cryptocurrency, um, I usually translate that into like using that particular term is you can kind of use it like money. And tokens and other things uh, often means, mean things other than money. Um, they may mean represent access or certain rights that you have. Um, and again, if, if, I, if I make up something like taco coin and I put together a network of taco shops and I say that each coin um, you will be able to uh, turn into a single taco, um, first of all, the entire thing doesn't make any sense because people just, there's a lot of people who basically say lots of things out there that are doing ICOs don't need tokens at all. They should just use a cryptocurrency natively, use money like Bitcoin. And, um, but again, people might want to support their local taco shop and uh, they feel different about, you know, owning a bunch of taco coins than merely using money. So I think a lot of the people that look at it very technically uh, miss some of the aspects of, yeah, man, I've got some taco coins. And, and in, in a strange turn of events, one of the early clones of Bitcoin, Dogecoin, um, is actually worth something today. So uh, uh, because of people's mining and other things around it, even though what the heck can you actually do with a Dogecoin? So that's, that's pretty interesting. What the heck can you actually do with any coin? And I guess it depends on uh, who's, 
who's evaluating or who's giving it value and where you're able to actually trade that for uh, goods or services or other currencies. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble is there's, I, I, I actually, I see a multi-token future. We actually are, there's tokens all around us uh, today. Um, so if, if uh, any of you made it to the PE, you might have gone to Playland and bought ride tickets where essentially tokens where you have the right to use one or more of those tickets to actually go on a ride. Or if you go into uh, the like skee-ball uh, video game arcade area where, again, you get tickets for getting certain points in the game, which you then go over and you know overpay uh, for a plastic friendship bracelet or a, um, an octopus stuffy. Yes, I actually have an octopus stuffy that I won there. And uh, so what are the value of those things? And we, we, we think of the fun involved in doing those sorts of things. And then, you know, if we thought about it rationally or economically, we would say, hey, can I just give you $5 for that octopus stuffy rather than paying the equivalent of $40 for some of it? But maybe you even want to hang on to your uh, peony tokens as part of your uh, uh, appreciation for the PE. So, in the same way, um, might we create Vancouver Tech Podcast tokens uh, that you give out to each of the guests, or like Medium is doing with multiple claps? Each episode might have people giving tokens to show appreciation for that particular episode. Um, and then we can see them in uh, mobile games in a lot of the places where they have in game currencies, except Right now, they're locked to just that game, and you can only buy virtual goods for them. Um, you know, World of Warcraft Gold is another piece that's kind of crossing the boundaries. It's a fully controlled economy, whereas if you put them out on blockchains where they interact in the real world, and it's a kind of form of programmable money that people can do different interesting things with it in a very decentralized community way. So that value comes everything from the difficulty of mining where people are spending electricity and compute cycles to create and secure each next block of the chain to literally people feeling good about having Karma points or Vancouver Tech Podcast points. Okay, I think we've done a pretty good job so far of sort of defining some of these terms and getting an understanding of what a cryptocurrency is, what a blockchain is. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, I guess, two more topics I'd like to dive into. One is... Um, what sort of what sort of companies make sense to, um, or or what sort of problems can uh, blockchain be leveraged to solve? And then the other one is um, what is what exactly is an ICO, an initial coin offering? Um, how and when should a company or could a company launch one? Um, so maybe we'll start with the uh, with the blockchain one first. What sort of problems? Um, are, are good problems to solve with uh, blockchain? Oh man, uh, so I'm gonna get in, in trouble from, from from various areas for the, for, for this <laughs> for this answer, but uh, it's okay. And I think this is part of the the uh, imposter syndrome of people coming up with their own answers to this. Whenever people say blockchain, one of the things that I like to replace and perhaps help understand a little bit more is just say decentralized global database. So if your problem needs a decentralized global database, then it could be a very good fit for the blockchain. Um, I'll give an example. 
um, some of what we're working on at Frontier, we are going to be working with uh, companies and investors. And one of the things that we need to do is we need to uniquely identify companies so that they kind of are who they say they are. Um, and we think it would be very useful to essentially have a public database of companies so that you and I uh, can both refer when we're saying to Frontier Foundry Corporation, uh, that we know what we mean and sort of disambiguate with that. And let's only have one entry for that. So rather than Crunchbase, as an example, uh, having this database where they attempt to track all the companies, what if we had that on a global blockchain that we could then uh, use that definition of a company in lots of other places instead of having to you know, rebuild various pieces of that. Let's all contribute to building a global database of companies. Um, then the next question is, well, what would you want to do with a global database of companies? Well, the interesting piece is because it's on the blockchain, various people can essentially use your definitions, use your data, and be able to build different parts and different solutions if we have a shared understanding of what a company is and how it's been verified in that public database. And I think that applies to lots of uh, data problems. Um, and there's others, various pieces around uh, decentralization and trustlessness. Uh, I often think about in today's world, in the world of, of 2004, when we had the first wave of Web 2.0, and we had Flickr, and we had uh, for photos, and we had Delicious for bookmarks, um, and uh, what was the other one? And then we had uh, uh, Technorati or Blogger for blogs. And each of them all use tags. But if you wanted to interrupt between the two, you had to build a fourth app that called into each of their APIs to be able to aggregate that together. Now, if social data and tags, blogs, links, and photos are written directly to a blockchain or public decentralized database, then various people could build various apps on top of that that reuses the same data. Um, and the blockchain, one of the things that it might do is record that you, Drew, with your blockchain account, uniquely own these pieces that have been written into the blockchain at a certain time and date. And I'm purposely using social media examples or something that's little or a toy because I think it's important to understand that that's exactly how the entire wave of innovation around Web 2.0 and the thing that we call social media today which was literally blogs and links in 2004, uh, started from something that was just a toy and very few people used. And the interesting other pieces of the blockchain really are that it's, it can be things like programmable money. So that as well as having a legal contract that says certain things, you can actually encode certain of those things directly into the blockchain that will automatically transfer value between accounts, whether that's listed as a token or the underlying cryptocurrency that more directly maps to money as we understand it today. Okay, that was um, a, a really nice description, I think, and and using the, the sort of blogs and, and links and, and social media type context gives a, a nice visual, I think, as well, that, that most of the listeners can uh, relatively easily understand. Now, when you said um, a distributed, uh, sort of decentralized distributed database, I immediately thought of two, th two sort of examples. One being, um, you know, a lot of people made the switch over to Git, uh, like a distributed uh, version control system, uh, as opposed to something like SVN or um, VCS. Uh, and 
an interesting thing, I think something that helped to make Git as popular as it is, I'm, I'm not even sure if that's true, but I, I think so, was a centralized, uh, a centralized system like GitHub or, uh, you know, somewhere to centralize that sort of repository. And then on the other hand, um, I also thought about Wikipedia because it's kind of a decentralized uh, um, way of collecting information, although it does end up becoming centralized as well. So do we see... I, do we see this sort of decentralization um, in play in other areas outside of blockchain? Uh, for sure. A decentralized web more broadly. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you strongly on Wikipedia. Um, okay. It is collaborative and distributed. It is not mm -hmm. decentralized. It is, in fact, fully centralized in the Wikipedia um, organization. I think it's called Wikimedia Foundation um, and mm -hmm. the actual website of wikipedia.org. Um, right. So it's built in a classic centralized architecture. They run a bunch of servers. Maybe they run them in two data centers, or you know, have a fairly substantial infrastructure. So, but it is very much centralized as far as uh, its yes. the foundation. Um, mm -hmm. Just like open source is groups of people collaboratively working together, possibly on centralized plat platforms like GitHub. <laughs> um, I think that's a, you know, trust has to get built up in some way. Trust and usability, right? We're, we're at a stage where a lot of decentralized apps or dApps, as they're also known, um, have, are hard, right? I, I think very strongly that uh, a lot of things need to get built mobile first, not most developers to work with these tools have uh, desktops or laptops and they work with desktop web browsers and they have a local demo that works on things. Um, I think an aspect of decentralization and peer-to-peer -peer is an understanding that um, there's large parts of the world who are coming online for the first time in Southeast Asia and in Africa who will have a mobile device, um, not just as their first computing device, but as their only computing device ever. And if we want them to uh, participate directly, so rather than, than having them get a Tumblr account or buy a domain name for $10 a year, uh, $10 a year is actually too much. They should be able to own their data. And what if we could actually have decentralized apps that ran on their phone, but connected and was not hosted anywhere? And, and in some ways, this concept of decentralization is the way that people think the cloud works today. It really is sitting on everybody else's computers, laptops, cell phones, and servers, whereas the cloud means, well, we're on Amazon or DigitalOcean or Azure. And uh, this next step of decentralization goes back to actually running lots of things on our own personal devices and having uh, a little more control and agency over our, our data because we are participating in this decentralized network with our unique keys and the code sets up the rules around which we can operate on that, including that lots of it is auditable and available for other people to examine. Uh, directly on chain. I think that was one of my early experiences. Um, once I got past actually the monetary aspects and, and really got interested in some of the technological pieces, the technologist in me was turned off by the financial aspects. And I'm like, oh, wait, there's some really interesting stuff you can do with decentralization. When, you know, I clicked a button and sent magic internet money from one device to another, and then I went to a third party website that tracked it and said, oh, that's my identity there. And here's the transaction that actually sent it. And here's my other account 
wow, I pressed some buttons and everybody in the world can see that that transaction happened. That's super interesting. What else can we do with that? What are some interesting and uh, interesting use cases that you've seen um, blockchain used for? Uh, so there's a local company that uh, we just started advising called RightMesh, uh, rightmesh.io. Uh, they uh, are a team out in Maple Ridge who uh, have um, also have an office in Bangladesh, uh, an engineering team of about 60 people. Um, that isn't outsourcing, that's, that's part of their team. Uh, and they had challenges around connectivity there. And they ended up developing a wireless mesh networking protocol. Super interesting. Um, and that, that basically helped uh, share bandwidth in, in a mesh um, between devices, between Wi-Fi routers, where somebody in the mesh has an uplink to the internet. And uh, unlike a centralized Wi-Fi system, if you add more Wi-Fi access points, um, they crowd the wireless spectrum and basically everybody has a slower connection. In a mesh, the denser and more connections you have, in fact, the better connections that you have. So an example of where a network has a lot of value. Um, so they're actually looking at adding a blockchain system to track tokens of shared bandwidth. So if I had a, a, a cell phone connection and I was sharing my bandwidth with you, Drew, um, let's say you had an iPad um, that only had Wi-Fi and didn't have um, a, uh, a cell connection, you, you could actually share the, the data from my, um, my uplink, my cellular uplink that I was, that I was paying for, um, and you might just transfer me some tokens. Uh, and that's super interesting kind of all over the world as there's different aspects of getting people online and, and, and sharing bandwidth. So I think that's a really unique one um, that has aspects of money, has aspects of, 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 of networks, uh, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how it evolves. So with a decentralized uh, sort of system like that, it seems, it seems pretty amazing. But um, does that also now mean that uh, regulators would have a hard time regulating? Yes, but that's more the question on the ICO side of things. And I think this is where a lot of the confusion is. Um, I specifically use the phrase magic internet money to have a certain level of distance and, and, and humbleness to say like, look, this stuff is evolving. Um, lots of it is very clunky. Um, and once you start mixing things that look a lot like money or that look like investments that people are moving sums in and out of, uh, then you are going to have to be aware of the regulatory environment on, um, and the challenge really is, as you were saying, um, I think that the, the, it's not that it's the decentralized nature for sure in, in, the, in the fact that it's a, a global network day one. So uh, much like... Well, actually, before, before we hop back over to the currency sure. side of it, I wanted to come back over to the, um, to the mesh network. And I was more thinking the types of data, the type of data that you might have. You have people that are, um, in, in this case, maybe you have cellular data uh, or you have da uh, mobile data and you're sharing your, your internet, uh, in that case, connection with other people kind of. But eventually I could see this as maybe not even requiring connection to any centralized uh, or any internet that is regulated um, by you know, the NSA or whoever else. Um, but now you have all of these uh, people on their mobile devices networked together, getting and sharing information that they care about, potentially um, uh, have, having, sharing files that they maybe, quote unquote, shouldn't be 
and and no one necessarily being able to regulate that. I mean, you could regulate the access points potentially to internet, but if you're not using that anymore, then maybe there's no there's no sort of form of centralized control. Absolutely. So if you're talking about at the network level and with that, uh, there are pieces of that where, you know, what does it mean to have a peer-to-peer connection? What does it mean to browse with a VPN? What does it mean to use Tor to protect more of your anonymity online? Um, so there's a whole bunch of concepts around the internet with um, uh, lawful intercept and, and, as you were saying, access to some of that data flow. Uh, and then, you know, this is the discussion we're, we're having right now. What is the ownership of your data? What does it mean for you privately in full on air quotes to share that data um, where basically at the, at the, um, the mesh level, you're, you're, you are very much connecting peer to peer and not transferring over something else. And so what are you? But you're also very much potentially uh, in complete control over what you choose to share on that mesh network. Absolutely, right? That's, that's a transit layer. And then what other types of apps will be built on top of that mesh networking protocol? Um, again, that might be everything from uh, taco shop points. Um, and there's lots of interest in this in the uh, emerging markets where almost no one has credit cards. Um, so they can't you know, buy an app on the App Store because they don't have a credit card. Might they use these uh, things that are sometimes data uh, and sometimes money to you know, reward someone for content or buy an app? And these are the sorts of things that, that are becoming possible. And I can definitely see how now this sort of decentralization is also decentralization of control. And it's putting, sort of putting that control into the hands of the user more so than at the mercy of the regulators. Uh, and so they would potentially want to stop this sort of progress from happening. That kind of leads into ICOs. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Why are uh, countries like China saying we, ha- we have a, uh, a countrywide ban on ICOs and other countries potentially following in suit? Um, where does this come from? Have we now missed the sort of the, the high point of the wave of, uh, of doing an initial coin offering? Lots of good questions. Um, I think we have to step back and set some of the, the ground conditions. So the, the reason that ICO has come up a lot and it's come a lot in, in funding circles and in, and in tech and in startups uh, is because uh, companies around the world have raised a total of somewhere around uh, 1.3 billion with a B um, dollars uh, in their initial coin offerings. So, and the bar has really uh, lowered to that. As we talked about before with uh, Ethereum and the ERC20 token, uh, making it much, much easier to, to actually create and sell your own coin, uh, it's, mean, it's meant that a lot of people have gotten involved and there's been sort of a global appetite um, of people who hold cryptocurrencies or people who want to get involved with crypto who have been funding these uh, initial coin offerings. Um, people are still calling uh, the top, you know, the, the, the crypto bubble is going to burst, uh, the um, ICO bubble is going to burst, uh, and that's where we've seen some of the first reactions uh, like China deciding to ban it. In, in China, um, Actually, there's a really good quote, Fred, Fred, Fred Wilson, um, and I forget what the reference is. I just saw it on my Twitter stream the other day. Um, he was uh, testifying at one point. I think the contest was, was Bitcoin. 
And he, he was quoted at the time as saying, um, yeah, and he's a noted venture capitalist. Um, it, he was noted as saying, we probably want to invest in anything that China bans. So with that perspective, um, it may actually be a good sign in the sense that uh, the large population in China is taking hold of it and they've had to ban it in order to kind of slow it down, which opens up the opportunity for ICOs in the rest of the world rather than them just taking place in China. Now, I do think that there have been uh, a huge increase because of the lower barrier of scams. There's lots of things that don't need tokens, but people are seeing them as easy ways to fundraise. And the reason that it's so hot right now is because the underlying cryptocurrencies have risen in value. So people are essentially sort of like um, have this extra money that they've made or they've made a return on their crypto. They bought it in January for $20, uh, Ethereum as an example, which is now worth uh, you know 400 Canadian. So they've made 20 times. So they're taking some of those earnings there's virtual earnings that they've made and then they're in turn investing in some of these ICOs, which has been this self-fulfilling prophecy where there's essentially been market demand for funding these types of things. So where does it go from here? If I'm a, I'm a company, I'm a, a podcast, I want an ICO. Uh, does that make sense? Uh, no, is the short answer. Uh, <laughs> what part... So. There's two pieces of that. So we can think of ICO as a funding mechanism where the thing that people hold at the end is a coin or token, which is somehow used in your network. Um, and uh, do, do you guys have sponsors right now? Uh, no, we don't. So maybe a Vancouver Tech Podcast ICO doesn't make sense, but maybe Podcast Coin, that is a mechanism for global sponsorship of podcasts might make sense. Basically, at the very least, and just to be clear, podcast coin probably doesn't make sense. Just use money, uh, just get actual sponsors. But if one were to do that, you actually have to have to have a business model that involves a large community, a network, and an economic model that actually produces and consumes those tokens in some ways. And maybe an ad network for podcasts called Podcast Coin might be something that you could do globally that that both podcasts and podcast supporters and sponsors to could take part of. And that's kind of what you need as a ground condition is you need that kind of business model. If you're just doing this asking for sponsorship, or if you're just doing a SaaS app with monthly fees, none of those things are decentralized and they don't have a community or economic model tied to them. So it's that sort of, um, that sort of decentralization, that community, uh, that, that sort of makes thing makes it make sense. Yes, that's it exactly. It's it's something that has to rely on the uh, trust factors, the automation factors, the uh, automation of money factors that uh, and the decentralized nature of blockchains um, that will tend to be networks of some kind. So something like a like a mesh net. If we were to set up a um, a, a Vancouver based mesh net for um, for gamers. So we, and we have a coin that uh, is used as the currency within that, that mesh net. That might make sense. I, I had you until you said the currency. Basically, as soon as you say currency, why not just use Bitcoin or Ether directly rather than having another token? So what other aspects actually require having a token that tracks some sort of 
rights or other features in some way that can't directly be done with money in different ways. And um, in the other mesh network example, and again, this is not me having the, the information in front of you, is each token in different areas of the world will be worth different amounts because internet access in Vancouver costs something different than it does in New York, as an example. So you have to be able to float some of those things back and forth. And when you move from New York to Vancouver, your tokens have to transfer in, in, in some way. So that's where I found a lot of people falling down is people that said, I want to do an ICO. And they want to do an ICO because they want to raise millions of dollars with basically an idea and then use the funding to build what they want to build. And I'm very nervous of those sorts of models without having something built and without having a strong economic model of how they're actually going to have network effects with their tokens. So do the tokens have to actually have value? I, I guess I said currency because um, that's what I've been thinking of it as. But on that mesh net, uh, that game sort of uh, mesh network, what if we had tokens that were simply there, you know, you could you could grab them to access uh, the uh, to access the network and so that it, it prevented too many people or too much access from a time or also enabled tracking. How do I get the tokens? No idea. And maybe everybody's, um, when you sign up, you're allotted a certain amount, but there's only a certain amount to, to be given. And once the first, um, let's say there's 10 tokens per person that, uh, that signs up, a million tokens, so up to 100,000 people can sign up. And then once that happens, um, either you have to sign up by having someone sponsor you and giving you tokens, or you're out of luck. Okay. Why are you using tokens? I don't know. For that, that, I guess go. that's the question. <laughs> so the, there's, there's no, you don't have a use case for tokens there. So oh, in this case, because you need tokens to access the network, so only why? people with tokens can be a part of why? it to keep people out, so that we know so, if there's a malicious user, so we can see a, who a, and where that came it's from. It's a login. It's a why login. Don't you just use a login. Yes. Aha. Good choice. <laughs> Okay, so I, I guess I'm still not completely these sure are really, when. These are, uh, these are really hard to come up with on the fly. Mm -hmm. And basically everything you're going to come up with on the fly, which is what I've seen a lot of, doesn't need tokens. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me like this is actually, um, you know, something that people are still, like myself, wrapping their heads around and kind of seeing, you know, oh, there's this, there's this cool thing. Somebody did uh, a, a billion dollar ICO. I want to get in on this. But that's not necessarily the way to look at it. It can be more, you know, let's see what this technology is. What sort of problems uh, can be solved with this? And is this a new way of sort of solving problems compared to what we've been doing so far? Absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll give a, a, another social media example. So there's a, a website called uh, Leroy.io, uh, L-E-E-R-O-Y.io. And it's a decentralized version of Twitter that runs on Ethereum where you have to use the Ether cryptocurrency for every follow uh, and every uh, post that you make on Twitter. Um, there's no, no such thing as a like. Uh, the only thing that you can do is essentially tip a person with, crypto, with the Ether cryptocurrency um, certain different amounts. Um, that's really interesting because it essentially gives a business model to a Twitter-like system. 
If people find value on it, they literally have to pay for every post. This keeps out spammers. Um, if spammers do want to pay, um, there can be other models around that where, hey, maybe I want to clean up spam where we have enough people um, who can say, you know, I don't want to see that. A part of that is actually, however, um, anti-censorship is it's actually written to the blockchain so no one can take it down. Right now, Twitter does a fair amount of censorship and there's a lot of people that very, feel very strongly about the ethos that there shouldn't be any censorship whatsoever. So that's a case where the blockchain gives both an economic model um, and censorship free properties. And it means that every like, follow and everything else like that is written as social data instead of being hidden away is available to anyone who wants to read it off of the blockchain. So what other things can you build on top of that without asking permission? And that's, some of the, that's, that's a really interesting model. And that's, that's some of the things that we're saying. What if Twitter was community owned? And that's one of the things where blockchain might be an answer for, which is kind of related to your malicious user example um, in, uh, in, the, uh, in the gaming network. Okay, yeah, that's a, that is a very interesting sort of model here. So you're, you're literally putting your, or I guess figuratively, <laughs> but you're putting your money where your mouth is in this case uh, by, by paying to, to say something. Exactly, including a tip model, right? And I, and I think that the, uh, uh, I think there's definitely, I mean, the, if you read about um, the Medium blogging platform and how they've implemented claps where instead of just clicking once, you can click many times. Um, that's a little bit more than a like. And they have some plans to pay out people um, based on that aggregate amount of claps that they do in different interesting ways. And, and uh, uh, that, I think, is inspired by another social media-based blockchain called Steemit. Have you heard of that one? No, I haven't. Definitely check that one out as well. And uh, I would encourage uh, the Vancouver Tech Podcast to start cross-posting to some of these things. Uh, to see if people want to start adding tips that way. What's it called? Steemin? Uh, Steem. S-T-E-E-M. All right. We'll definitely check it out. Well, uh, Boris, if I want to find out more about uh, Frontier Foundry or, or you personally, uh, what are some good ways to get in touch? Do you have, should I look at Twitter, read the blog? Um, yeah. So do you have any plans for me? So FrontierFoundry.co um, is, the, is the website. Um, we have a blog which actually these days is um, mainly collected articles and links that we're finding really helpful that we send out that we call our reading list of sort of foundation, foundational pieces around the tech and economics uh, around uh, cryptocurrency and, and blockchain. Uh, we tend to cross post new stuff to the, uh, the, the Twitter blog. Uh, I tweet probably slightly too much at bman uh, is my handle. Um, we are, are looking at doing, um, uh, I don't know if you've heard about it, but uh, uh, Blockchain UBC is a group that's putting together a BC-wide blockchain consortium, and we're going to be involved in helping with some of the community aspects of that, and really trying to help uh, level up what's happening, not just in Vancouver, but in BC. Uh, and so look for, for more things that are happening uh, around that, and we'll have some meetups and panels and, and, and other events in the fall. Boris Mann of Frontier Foundry. Thank you very much for being on this episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Thanks, Drew. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Check out our website, vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Rate and subscribe on iTunes. Much appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter, Van Tech Podcast. Feel free to leave some comments below. You can also hit us up on the YVR Dev, the Vancouver Tech, the Van Tech Slacks. I'm at James. And I'm at Drew. Special thanks to Same Room for hooking us up with an integration that allows us to have a cross-team Slack channel, Van Devs. Do you have a meetup that you want us to plug? Email us, show at vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Music by A Shell in the Pit from the game Parkitect. See you at one of the meetups around, around town. town.